Psalm 130. Our goal has been in preaching through some of these psalms, honestly, to whet your appetite and, and get you to want to go to the psalms and meditate on them. But there's been a second goal, too, and I was thinking through this this week in my office. It, it's to help us to worship. This is, this is God's worship manual to us. Individually and corporately, he has written the psalms for us to teach us and to help us to worship. Worship is such a big word, and it, and it can be taken to mean so many different things. And, and, and one of the things that helps us is to understand and get a little bit of an understanding of how the psalms are even broken down, how, how God presents the psalms to us. We're in a section of psalms this morning, Psalm 130. When we land there, we're in, we're in a little booklet in the psalms, if you will, a little section of the psalm hymn book from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, that if you look at all the psalms, you'll see the same heading. In fact, just go back to Psalm 120. You'll see me if you don't believe me. You'll see this heading on all these psalms. And in, in my Bible, it says it's a psalm of ascent, or maybe your Bible has a psalm of, a psalm of degree. These, these 15 psalms were grouped together under divine inspiration, I believe, put together to, to their, what I would call pilgrim songs, psalms. There are psalms that were sung by those who were headed up to Jerusalem to worship. They were going to a festival or a feast or, or to an important day of sacrifice. These psalms were the psalms that were sung. They're traveling songs. You know, you know picture country western songs, you know, that, you know, that have real sing-songy tunes to them or whatever. These songs were put to tunes that were easily sung while you were walking. And make no mistake, no matter what direction you were coming from, north, south, east, or west, when you talked about going to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem. And that's why it's a psalm of ascent. You were ascending into Jerusalem. You were ascending to where the temple was. But not only is this a psalm of ascent or a song of ascent, this is also one of the rare psalms. There are seven of these in the, in the psalms of the 150. It's a penitential psalm. It's a penitential psalm. It's a psalm of, of, of seeking forgiveness, of, of offering up. The, the, the psalmist crying out in his sin to God. Probably the most famous one of these is Psalm 51. You're familiar with Psalm 51, right? It's, it's what David writes after he is, has been caught in his sin with Bathsheba and convicted in his heart of his sin. And it's written like after a year after of David living in, in, in light of that guilt. This is a psalm that is similar to that. And, and so before we even jump into the psalm, you've got to take those two ideas together to get understand what, what's going on here with this psalm. It's a psalm to prepare us for worship, but it's also a psalm that, that is expressing deep remorse and seeking God's forgiveness. And, and that's important that we recognize that because we need to understand this this morning. You need to understand this. I need to understand this this morning. The greatest obstacle to worship that glorifies God is not what instrument we use. It's not what the room temperature is. It's not, it's not our, our view of what Bible is the right Bible. Our greatest obstacle to worship that glorifies God, to give him the praise and the glory that he so rightfully do, is sin. It's the greatest obstacle that there is. And every day, you and I battle with it, do we not? 
Every day we battle with it. And so let's understand, every day in our hearts, there is this giant battle for what we're going to worship. And when we don't worship the right thing, we're sinning. You do understand that, right? When we don't worship the right thing, we're in sin. And, and, and so when this battle is being played out for us, and this is the psalmist way of putting to song, and this is God's way of putting to song for his people, his covenant people, Israel, as they were coming to prepare to worship him. This is one of the songs that they sang. And so that every time that they would be making that trip to Jerusalem, one of the songs they would sing would remind them just how sinful they were. Oh, that's really happy, isn't it? But don't we need to be reminded of just how sinful we are? And I would say to you, there, there's, there's hope in that, because if we turn to the right source of forgiveness, there, there's great hope in that. And so, this morning, we come to Psalm 130. And so, Father, before we even begin, search our own hearts. Holy Spirit, do work in our own hearts. Point us to the wickedness that, 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 that is, is existing in each one of our hearts so that, that we might experience the true joy and freedom of worship and relationship with you the way you want it to be, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's, this psalm is really easy to understand. And if you're not a poetry person, and i got to be right up front with you, I am not a poetry person. Um, in, in school, and I can remember specifically in college, taking British literature, and, and the person that was teaching our class in British literature got up in front of us and said, if you're not a poetry person, you're going to hate this class. And I'm like, that's it, I'm checking out. <laughs> I, I'm not a poetry person. But as I've gotten older and more mature, um, I've come to appreciate a little bit of poetry. This is poetry. And, and what you have here is four couplets. Two verses each in the scripture here. And, 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 and the writer of this uses this tool to just kind of organize his thoughts and help us organize. And it works really well if you were going to set it to song because it's like a four-verse hymn, if you will. Of course, every good Baptist knows that every hymn has to have four verses, right? And it's got to have a chorus that just keeps repeating itself over and over and over, right? Well, this song has that. Some of you are like, oh, I hate those things that repeat themselves. Those are terrible. Well, then you must not like God's word. Because God's word in the psalm, they repeat themselves. You see it here. Verse 6, he, he, he says the same phrase twice in a row. Why does God do that? Because repetition's good for us. Why does he say over and over, I will wait for you. I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to wait for you. Because you know what? We don't wait for God. And we're going to get to that here in just a second. But the first couplet I want you to see in verses 1 and 2 is, is the psalmist, and I would say our desperate need for mercy. Our desperate need for mercy. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the, vo the voice of my pleas for mercy. This cry, the first thing I want you to see this morning, and I'm moving quick because our time is limited. The first thing I want you to see, this cry is coming from a place of great need. Friend, do you know how needy you are this morning? Do you know how needy you are? Do you realize, you're like, well, my bank account's full, uh, my gas tank's full, which empties my bank account, right? Um, you know, I, I, there's food in our, and, and I got clothes. Do you know how needy you are spiritually? Do you know how dependent you are upon God for, for anything in terms of your spiritual life? Apart from him giving you mercy, do you realize that your life is hopeless? Your future's hopeless? 
And the psalmist here is in a place, he's crying out of the depths because he understands his place of need. Last week when we looked at Psalm 42, we talked about spiritual despondency and despair and depression. And one of the things I said to you in passing was, is that sin and unconfessed sin, unforgiven sin, will put us in the depths. It will. It'll put us absolutely in the depths. Because, because if we don't deal with our sin guilt before God, that guilt just crushes us. You ever experienced that crushing feeling of sin guilt? That's what the psalmist here is dealing with right now. He's dealing with that crushing weight of guilt that's pressing on him. That, that, you know, when you have a serious pain, maybe it's a sciatic nerve, or you got pain in one of your joints, your knees or something, that just will not go away until finally you have to break down and go to the doctor. That's kind of this kind of same thing, but it's in his spiritual life. And it is pressing more and more out of him. So he says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The depths in the scriptures are a metaphor for adversity, for trouble. They're a place of being alienated from God. And that's what sin does to us. It cuts us off from God. The word is very clear. God's very clear himself. He, he, he says, because I'm a holy God, I can't abide sin. He tells us this, that, that if we regard sin in our heart, he won't hear us. Can you be any more alienated from God to be, than to be in a place where he won't hear you? And so here, the psalmist is just saying that, that, that I'm in this terrible place, and what makes it even worse but yet I find hope in it, is this. He realizes he can't get out of this place by himself. He can't. He cannot pull himself out of the depths. He, there's nothing he can do. He can't claw his way out. He can't make a rope strong enough. And if he, even if he could make a rope strong enough, he can't throw it high enough to get out of this pit. He is in a pit that, that he can never escape, which is a picture of where all of us are before we come to Christ and before Christ comes to us and, and, and brings salvation to us. And so he realizes his situation, and in his heart, he cries out to God. And I, and I would submit to you, according to Romans 3, there's no one who seeks after God, and so God's already at work in this psalm. We already see God at work here in verses 1 and 2. God, God puts it in his heart to seek after him. And what's interesting to me is what he asks for and who he asks it of. He addresses God by, by the two names that Israel would use for God. Notice in verse one, it's O Lord, and it's all capital, L-O-R-D. That was Yahweh, that was the term that Israel, they didn't even speak that name for God, it was God's covenant-keeping name. And then in verse two, he uses the second word, Lord, which we, in our English language, we differentiate that by not capitalizing all the letters. He says, O Adonai. A more, a more, if you will, it's a reverential name for God, but it's a more, if you will, accessible name for God. He, he doesn't use the, the name that they're even afraid to say in verse 1. In verse 2, he uses the more accessible name if there is such a thing for God. And he says, I need mercy. I need mercy. Hear my voice. That plea for mercy, when you start to research it out in the New Testament, it's got servant master language in it, in its, in its roots. What do I mean by that? Well, it's, it's the idea of the servant petitioning the master for something that the servant doesn't deserve. And, and that's where this writer is as he, as he approaches God. And may I submit to you 
The greatest need for the one who's dealing with sin is not to feel better. The greatest deal, the need for someone who's dealing with sin is not just to make it go away. The greatest need that you and I have when we are trapped in our sin is for mercy. Because here, the greatest threat for those of us who are trapped in our sin is that we're going to be judged for it. And so, verses 1 and 2, there's not a whole lot of hope there yet, is there? But there's a realistic look at this person's life. I'm in the depths here. I need mercy. I can't get out of this myself. And, and that's where we all have to be. And so, now we see really even more in the second couplet why we so desperately seed mercy. Verses 3 and 4 make up the second couplet of this song. If you, O Lord, again, now he goes back to the, the big name for God, the Yahweh name for God. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Let me put it in the common vernacular for us to understand. If God kept score, we would all lose. Am I right? If God's keeping score, there's none of us who are going to stand at the end and say, I've won. Because here's the, here's the reality. We all, all sin. We do it really well. There's one thing I'm really good at in life, and that is sinning. Anybody else in this room with me? I can do it well. I can do it big. I can do it small. I can do it hidden. I can do it right out in the open. I am good at sinning. That's not to excuse it. But that's just a realistic understanding of this. If God starts keeping track, we're all in trouble. If God keeps score, let's understand this. There is none of us who are righteous. And so here's the thing. Okay, God, because if you keep score, none of us are righteous. Maybe you should just stop keeping score, God. Wouldn't that be great if God just stopped keeping score? The problem is then he wouldn't be God. Because one of the fundamental things about God is, is that he is holy and that he is just. And, and so God just can't ignore sin. I think sometimes as parents, we think we can just ignore sin. <laughs> you know, and our kids are like, I'm just going to not even acknowledge that and it'll go away. Does it ever go away, parent? No. And here's the thing with God. God just can't ignore sin and just act like it's not there. God's got to keep track because of his justice and holiness. Which is why verse 4 is so important. If the psalm ended with verse 3, we might as well just go on our merry ways because we are all plunging headlong into a godless hell. Right? But according to verse 4, he says this, With you there is forgiveness. There, there's, a, there's, there's a way to settle the score. There's a way to settle the skin, sin debt here that, that we all have. And it's called forgiveness. And the only way for God to not keep a record of my sin is if he would forgive my sin. And the only way for him to forgive my sin is if somebody would come in and pay my sin debt. Because God's holy and just. He can't just, remember, he can't just say there's no, no, your debts are forgiven. Someone has to have paid. Someone has to have paid. And so, without bringing Christ specifically in there. There's no mention of Jesus. There's no mention of cross. The, the writer here is hopefully looking forward to the one day when, when, when the basis for forgiveness is coming, and it's Christ dying on the cross. 
In 1 John chapter 2, in fact, just, just turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. I want you to see this. John would write about this hundreds of years later. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, he's writing about Jesus. In verse 1, he says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Again, why do we need an advocate? Because God's holy and just. He's going to judge sin. We need an advocate. And we need a really good one, don't we? Well, we've got the best one. It's Christ. He's the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. You say propitiation. That's not a word I used this last week. I didn't use it either. Propitiation is the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, the blood of Christ, this thing that we celebrated in communion, the sacrifice of Christ, it is good enough to be appropriated for all who would take it. And so... When the psalmist writes in verse 4 of Psalm 130, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, this is not an empty promise of just like, oh yeah, God's going to make it all go away. No, this comes at a great price. It comes at the price of Christ's life and his, his body being broken, his blood being shed. But notice the point of forgiveness that the psalmist brings to us. When you found out you were forgiven, how many of you were really happy when you found out you were forgiven? How many of you were just overjoyed? I mean, you just couldn't contain it. I mean, you, you went out like a babbling fool and you told everybody that you were saved and people looked at you, what is wrong with you? I remember, I remember when, when I, at seven years old in Sunday school, when, when, when I confessed my sins to Christ and and, and I didn't understand all that, that had happened there. I still don't. You know, For anybody to say they completely understand what happened at the moment of salvation, they just don't understand how deep salvation is. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. I remember at seven years old wanting to run to find my mom and dad. I wanted to run and find them. I grew up in this Christian home. We were in this church every... But I mean, I knew something really great had just happened. And, and, and we get excited about salvation, but the psalmist doesn't go there with this. You might say, but with you there is forgiveness so that we could get the biggest praise band ever and just really just jam out praising you, right? No. With you there's forgiveness so that you may be feared. Now, we see fear of God a lot in the scriptures, and it usually has to do with the anger, the wrath, and, and all of that stuff that God has. That. Let's be honest, when God gets angry, should we be afraid? Yeah, you better believe we should. But when God saves us, we should be just as fearful in this regard. In this regard. Why God, why me? Why would you do this? I loved it as Dave Rumke prayed for the, for the, for the cup. He alluded to it, it's like, we just gotta stop and just let this sink in and just understand how thankful we need to be for something that we couldn't absolutely do for ourselves. That causes us to fear this God. It's a reverence and, and, it's, and, it's a, and, and, and it also transforms the way that we worship. Whether it's corporately or privately, one aspect of our worship ought to be this. It ought to be full of praise, full of joy, thankfulness, but it ought to be full of reverence for who God is and what he's done. 
And it ought to cause us to just kind of like catch our breath, like this is an amazing God that would do this for me. And so as the people are moving their way to Jerusalem and as they're ascending up to Jerusalem, one of the things they're singing is, with God there's forgiveness so that we will fear you. So that we'll fear you. Which leads us into the third couplet. If you don't fear God, you can't wait for him. Let me say that again. If you don't truly fear God, you won't wait for him. You just won't. Because, because here's the thing. If you view God as, as a genie in the bottle who is there, you just come and pray to him when things get desperate. And Okay, God, things in my life are out of kilter now. Now is when I really need you. That's not fearing God. A proper fear of God sees him for who he is at all times. And so the third couplet then is this. There's, a, there's this cry for mercy, the, the, this need for forgiveness that leads to an anticipation and hope. Everybody look up here for a second. How many of you really think that God does everything like you would like him to do too in the time that you want him to? <laughs> How many of you get impatient with God? Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you ever catch yourself praying this way? I mean, we, we, I know we're in church. We're not supposed to talk this way on a Sunday. Do you ever catch yourself praying this way? Now would be a good time, God. Now? Now would be a good time. Are you aware of what's going on down here? Now would be a good time. Are you aware of what's happening in my family? Are you aware of what's happening in the world? Are you aware of what's happening in Africa right now, God? Now would be a good time. There's some historical background that I think we need to understand here. Waiting for the Lord. Part of the Old Testament sacrifice and the sacrificial system involved waiting for the people. There is a sense where they physically had to wait. Now, just think about it. Just think about the sheer immensity of, of like, um, like the Day of Atonement, all these people showing up in Jerusalem, having to do this at the temple, and all this happening, and bringing their sacrifices. It wasn't like you walked into McDonald's or into Kroger or somewhere where you get served really quick and they had self-serve. No, you had to wait on the priests. And there was a lot of slaughtering going on. And so when you came to the temple, you had to wait. And, and as, as, as someone who understood the Old Testament scriptures, you understood, i got to offer this sacrifice to make things right with God. And, and there's in this anticipation, I want to do it. And folks, sometimes the Christian life requires discipline that we just have to wait. But here's the beauty. Because we are forgiven and we can fear God, we can also wait. We can also wait. I know we don't want to wait. We live in an instant society. Where would we be without air fryers and microwaves if we actually had to actually cook our meals over fire? I think we would all go hungry. Where would we be? God doesn't work in microwave ways all the time. And because God is forgiving and faithful, we can wait for him to respond. And again, this is sung in, in, in procession, and all these people are singing it to one another. They're rehearsing this together. Do you understand the power of that? I mean, how many of you at times when you come in here on a Sunday morning, you're dragging, and then you hear God's people sing, and you're like, I think I can get through the next day. 
This is, this is what's going on. They're going up to, to offer their, their sacrifice and their praise to God, and, and they're reminding themselves, one another, and brother and sister, we live in days where we need to remind one another how good it is to wait on the Lord and that we can depend on him. Right now in this room, you're probably sitting by somebody who needs to be reminded that, hey, you can wait on the Lord. He will be faithful. You can wait on the Lord. How sure is the psalmist of this? Look at verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. The watchman was a really important figure in, in this society. The watchman stood on the walls of the city at night, and they had to be alert. They're waiting for, they're waiting for harm to come. But the, the one thing the watchman knew just like some of you on your jobs, you know when it's time to clock in and clock out. The watchman knew that when the sun rose, they got to go home. And here's what I also knew. They knew that the sun was coming up every morning, right? Yet, they're there waiting. Yep, it's been the 365th day in a row with no problems. Come on, son, get up. I want to go home. Folks, that same reliability of the sun coming up every morning points us to the faithfulness of our God who is more sure and more dependable than the sunrise. And so just like the watchman waits for the sun to come up, we can hope in God. But it doesn't end here. You'd like it to because it's afternoon, but it doesn't end here. We've got to finish up with the last two verses. And I love this. Because here's, here's what really happens when you and I cry out to God for mercy and he gives us mercy and he gives us forgiveness and, and we, we experience the waiting on God and we see him faithful in the waiting. Have you experienced God faithful in your waiting at times? Have you experienced that? Here's the thing that it fuels. It fuels this almost evangelistic fervor or this desire to tell others about how faithful and good God is. The psalmist ends this way, Oh, Israel, okay? Not just a group of people I'm walking up to the temple with. All of Israel, hear this. Hear this. Understand this. My countrymen, hope in the Lord. Why? Because with the Lord, there's steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Redemption is one of the most beautiful words in the Scriptures. Redemption is one of the most beautiful words in the Scriptures. Do you understand the beauty of the word redemption? It means that you're delivered from the misery of captivity. It means that, that you're delivered from the hardship of sin's bondage. It means that you're, you're totally relieved of guilt and damnation. Redemption's a beautiful word. The old hymn writer wrote it this way, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Israel, I've experienced myself, and I'm telling you, there's hope. Hope in the Lord. With him there's love. With him there's redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now that's a promise that still hasn't come true for Israel. But it's going to come true for Israel. There's one thing that I didn't touch on. That if you're paying attention, you're like, why did he avoid one phrase in this psalm? Well, I wanted to save it for the last. Because to me it's the most important thing. It's the linchpin of this psalm. In verse 5, where the psalmist talks about waiting, this is not empty waiting. 
what, what is his rock-solid hope in the waiting? Do you see it there at the end of verse 5? Just read it together with me. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his I hope. It's in his word. Without that phrase in this psalm, this psalm becomes empty. This psalm becomes empty. And, 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 and let's understand something. The only way you and I are going to have hope, I, I say this jokingly to you, I said it to somebody this morning as we were walking in. The, you got to just turn off the news, people. You got to just turn off all this stuff that's going, and you, and you got to open your Bible. You, you got you to just stop on Facebook and Twitter. Have you found that the more you vent on Facebook and Twitter, the more frustrated you get? Have you found that to be true? Have you found that the more you read God's word, the more your soul finds quiet rest? I'm not saying that there might be a correlation there. Here's the thing. And, and I can't point this out enough. This was, a, this was a corporate psalm. This was a psalm to be sung in group, in procession as they were going up to the temple. And I say this to us as a church family. Oh, how we need, and God knows this. This is why he said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You need this. You and I need to come together even when we're not feeling it, even when it's Hartford Fair Week and it seems like half the church is showing animals on Sunday. What is that? I'm so grateful for the other half that came today because you've encouraged. You have pointed me to hope in Christ. I mean, how many of you can't leave here feeling somewhat hopeful because you heard the testimony of Manasseh this morning? If, if our brothers and sisters in Nigeria can do this, I can do this here in America, right? I can do this. I can do this. Not because I've got the power, but, but because I can hope in God who's faithful, who has taken me out of the pit by his mercy, who isn't marking my iniquities anymore. He's not keeping score because he's forgiven me. Is that your hope this morning? That's a blessed hope, isn't it? <laughs> your life may be literally falling apart, but if you're in Christ, he's not keeping score anymore. That's great news. That's great news. And so we can wait on the Lord. Oh God, make it to be so. Father, what hope there is in this psalm. And I pray for those in this room who have not experienced the rescue out of the depths. May, may, may it come soon. May they, may they realize the only rescue is found in Christ. I'm so grateful that you are a God who is just overflowing with mercy. And that you don't mark our iniquities. And you give us forgiveness. We, there's gospel hope. There's gospel hope in this chapter, God. There's gospel hope in this song. And so I pray that this week, no matter where you would take us, no matter what we're doing, our work situations may be tough. Situations at home may be tough. Relationship issues. All these things where you take us, may we not lose hope. And then, God, I pray that you would bring us together next Sunday so that we would help to point one another to the hope that's in Christ. We so desperately need it.
Thank you for being a real hope, a legitimate hope. Thank you for being the God who is full of steadfast love and has plentiful redemption. We so desperately need it. Thank you for meeting with us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.